good afternoon. You're listening to Let the Bible Speak. Let the Bible Speak is the radio ministry of the Free Presbyterian Church. Stephen Pollock is the pastor of the Free Presbyterian Church of Malvern, Pennsylvania. Thank you for joining us today as he opens the Word of God and lets the Bible speak. I say we're turning tonight to uh, 2 Kings chapter 4, and it's been several weeks uh, since we we last considered uh, this woman and her son. Now what we've seen so far in this chapter is we see a woman of remarkable faith. It's good to pause again and remind ourselves that at this time, Baal worship is dominating the nation. There is just a remnant who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Now, it's not an inconsiderable number of people in that remnant, but it is still a remnant that have not bowed the knee to Baal. What is more is that in this woman's home situation, it seems that she is the spiritual leader. It would seem that her husband does not share her strength of faith. Whether he's a believer or not, it's hard to say, but it certainly it would seem that he does not share her faith. It is the lady who leads in verse number 9, Behold, now I perceive that this is an holy man of God's. Let us make a little chamber. It's her initiative in recognizing Elisha as a man of God that drives this home forward in a good direction. I made the point, I remind you again, uh, those who live in an unequal yoke in the province of God, uh, that those who are spiritual should not make the excuse of an ungodly husband or wife, and so by hindering, hindering their spirituality, rather you keep on pressing on with the Lord. And so she's the one who's accepting and welcoming the prophet. And hence she is the one who we see as welcoming and accepting the God of the prophet. And the Lord is pleased to favor her with his son. But as we saw last time, the Lord who gives is the Lord who takes away. And again, this woman comes to the fore as a woman of remarkable faith. She shows faith in the night as well as the day. The sun dies suddenly. All is well in the morning. He goes out to the field. You have that there in verse 18 and following. He goes out to the field, but by the midday he is dead upon his mother's knees. He's died suddenly. But for this lady, faith doesn't dissolve into unbelief. But in faith she seeks out Elisha, the man of God. Going to Elisha, she's going to the Lord. Elisha is the mediator. Elisha is the one who brings the word from God. And as we'll see, Elisha is the one who prays to the Lord on her behalf. So let's take up a story in verse number 32. And let's read uh, from the verse number 32 uh, this evening. And when Elisha was come into the house, behold, the child was dead and laid upon his bed. He went in, therefore... And shut the door upon them twain, and prayed unto the Lord. And he went up, and lay upon the child, and put his mouth upon his mouth, and his eyes upon his eyes, and his hands upon his hands. And he stretched himself upon the child, and the flesh of the child waxed warm. Then he returned, and walked in the house to and fro, and went up, and stretched himself upon him. And the child sneezed seven times, and the child opened his eyes. And he called Gehazi and said, Call this Shunammite. And so he called her. And when she was come into, in unto him, he said, Take up thy son. 
Then she went in and fell at his feet, and bowed herself to the ground, and took up her son and went again. So we do see in this account of God's word, we see a picture of remarkable faith. We're reminded that in our troubles it is the Lord we must turn to. We're reminded that those who are dead cannot walk the walk to get to the man of God, as it were. They, 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 they can't come. They can't come to Elisha's greater prophet Christ himself. And so in this faith, we find a woman bringing her son to God through God's appointed prophet. And what follows after this picture of remarkable faith is the process of a remarkable resurrection. The details are supplied. You have eye upon eye, hand upon hand, and such like things in the account. And the significance of all of these things can be difficult to be certain about. Hard to know for definite as to what's involved in these various pictures. But the key lesson is very simple. We don't need to debate the key lesson, and that is that God works miraculously, but graciously uses the prayers of his people. This is a miraculous work of God. It is God alone who raised the Son to life. But he is pleased to use the prayers of his people. A mother coming to Elisha, Elisha coming to the Lord, and this child receives life. I want to come at this uh, resurrection from two perspectives. I want to look at how we see Elisha here as a praying man. And then I want to see how we notice Elisha as one who points forward to the greater prophet. So I want to move in those circles. I want to look initially at Elisha just as he is portrayed as a praying man. And then see the significance to the greater than Elisha. So first of all then, we do see Elisha here as a praying man. You recall Elisha's predecessor, Elijah. You remember how he's described in James chapter 5. He's a man of Subject to like passions as we are, he prayed earnestly that it might not rain, and it rained not on the earth by the space of three years and six months. And he prayed again, the heaven gave rain, and the earth brought forth her fruits. We're shown by James there the ordinariness of Elijah, a remarkable man, but a ordinary man, a man subject to like passions. And that is given as an example as to how the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. And just as Elijah is a man of like passion, so we could say the same for Elisha. He is an ordinary man at prayer. And we find him praying here in the verse number 33. He went in therefore and shut the door upon them twain and prayed unto the Lord. Now whilst we will look ahead... And we will see how Elisha points forward to Christ. We should immediately note, though, there is a contrast between this miracle and Christ's miracles. There are two women who receive sons back to life in the Old Testament. And in both occasions, the prophets look to the power outside of themselves. The prophets cry unto God. Christ does not do that. Christ has the power within himself. Being God, he simply causes, so the, causes the individuals to rise again from the dead. And so while we see Christ in type here, we, we should still note 
that Elisha here is a man, and a man at prayer. Why pray? Why do we labor in seasons of prayer, privately or publicly? Is there any point in praying? Does prayer actually do anything? Is it one of the consequences of a high view of God's sovereignty is that some have led to conclusions that prayer is about worship more than about supplications. Now, you know that I believe in God's absolute sovereignty. That for God to be sovereign at all, he must be sovereign over all. You cannot have partial sovereignty. And thus I believe that everything that occurs in history has been foreordained of God. There is nothing outside the sovereign eternal will of our God. But at the same time, I would affirm that this son would not have been brought back to life was it not for Elisha's prayers. Without Elisha's prayers... This resurrection would not have taken place. Because the Bible that shows us the sovereignty of God also shows us that God is pleased to use prayer. And in classical Reformed theology, and it's often put in this way, that the God who is sovereign over the end, he is also sovereign over the means. But the means themselves are effectual. Prayer actually works. You turn back to Exodus chapter 32. Exodus chapter 32. And I, I just want to give you a flavor of this. You may be content in your mind. You may believe all of these things. But let me remind you again that prayer actually works. It works in the providence of God. It works in the sovereignty of God. But it actually works. It avails much. Not simply in our lives, but it avails much in this world. Exodus chapter 32, you have the account of Aaron making the golden calf. Moses on the mountain, he's receiving the, the Ten Commandments, he's receiving the, the law from God. And verse 9, And the Lord said unto Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. And now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may wax hot against them, and that I may consume them, and I will make of thee a great nation. Now the Lord... The Lord, and I say this carefully, the Lord is not giving a false threat here. Sometimes, as we try to resolve these difficulties in the Word of God, we, we attribute to God things that must never be attributed to God. God is not being insincere here in His warnings. He means what He says. My wrath... It's going to wax hot against them. And verse 11 says, And Moses besought the Lord his God and said, Lord, why doth thy wrath wax hot against thy people, which had brought forth out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? And he goes on to pray, verse number 13, Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel thy servants, to whom thou swearest by thy own self, and says unto them, I will multiply your seed as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have spoken of will I give unto your seed, and they shall inherit it forever. Here's the prayer. Moses pleaded before the Lord is God. He besought the Lord is God. And he says in the verse number uh, 12, Turn from thy fierce wrath and repent of this evil against thy people. 
Right. By the way, Moses is not suggesting that God's actions would have been evil there. He's using the word evil in the sense of a, of a bad outcome. It's not, going to be, it's not going to be good. It's going to be a tragic situation if your wrath is against the people. And verse 14 says, And the Lord repented of the evil which he thought to do unto his people. What changed the situation? In the biblical narrative, the only thing that changed the situation was Moses' prayer. I understand there is anthropomorphic language here. The immutable God uh, cannot change that this outcome, this whole thing was in the purpose of God, but we must not. We must not come to the conclusion that this does not mean what it says it means. Moses prayed, and God's actions towards the people altered in light of that praying. You think of Elijah. Did his prayers work? Well, we're told in James 5 they did. He prayed, no rain, no rain. He prayed, rain, there's rain and fruit following. And the Bible tells us that the reason no rain, prayers. The reason rain, prayer. Again, we should see these things. Well, we shouldn't ignore these things. Hezekiah, you're going to die. Praise, 15 more years. What changed? The prayer changed the outcome. And so, in Pentecost, the Holy Spirit is promised. But the disciples are told to pray. You tarry, you wait, you pray, and the Holy Spirit will be poured out upon you. And so it was. But there's a connection. You, you can't read those early chapters of Acts without seeing the connection between the prayers of God's people and the outcome, namely God doing what he's promised to do. So however you understand God's sovereignty, do not understand it in a way whereby it stifles your prayer life and you pray saying, what's the point really? I'll pray because I'm supposed to pray, but I don't actually believe that my prayers will do anything. You see, in all the cases that I've given you, I would say the outcome was contingent on the praying. The outcome happens in the providence of God and the sovereignty of God because those prayers took place. No prayer, no result. And so here in this case, Elisha's praying effects a change in the event. He went in therefore, verse 33, shut the door upon them twain and prayed unto the Lord. What a privilege to be used of God in the outworking of a sovereign will. And what a blessing it is that you can come and be part of God's people and seek God's face. You see, do note, with regards to Elisha's praying here, there are a few things just to note, and then we'll move on. Note the privacy of prayer. Verse 33, he went in therefore and shut the door upon them twain. It, it echoes Matthew chapter 6, doesn't it? When you pray, pray to your Father in secret. It's not denying public prayer. I've just said a matter about public prayer there this evening. No, it's not denying that. Acts chapter 1 is all about public prayer. But here, there's private prayer. Don't, don't be content with coming to the public prayer meeting. Don't think you're, you're, you're really getting, getting on with God because you come to this place. Don't, don't miss out the benefit of shutting the door and being alone with the Lord. No one sees you. No one hears what you're saying. You get no pat up on the back. It's between you and God. 
God's plea to do things for us when we meet with him in private. The Father who sees in secret shall reward thee openly. There's privacy in the prayer. Note the priority in the prayer. He went in therefore, shut the door and prayed unto the Lord and he went up. Prayer came first. Oh, if we could only learn that lesson, how often we get that the wrong way round. We act, we feel, and then we think, oh, I better start praying now. Uh, be honest, uh, how often have we done that in our lives? Well, we begin to deal with a problem. We're trying to resolve a situation, and we fall flat on our faces, and at that point we say, it's about time I prayed. There's a priority in prayer here. You, you see that here. He prays first. There's also a persistence in the prayer. He labors in prayer. There is an initial token for good, verse 34. The child waxes warm. There's, there's an initial sign that God is at work here. Ah, but that is not enough. In verse 35, then he returned and walked in the house to and fro, and then back up again, stretched himself upon him again. I think this walking in the house to and fro was a continued season of prayer. Can I prove it? No, but I think it's the, it's the flavor of the passage. First time he prays, then he stretches himself. Second time he stretches himself. Is it not reasonable to assume that in that walking to and fro, he's wrestling in the place of prayer? I encourage you, pray through. Sometimes we pray for a loved one and we see an initial sign and then it doesn't come through. You've got to pray on. Keep on praying through. You pray for them. They, they begin to come to you and say, you know, I'm, I'm reading my Bible now. You think, God, God's going to answer prayer. And so you, you hang back. No, you've got to keep on pressing through in prayer. Get through to God in prayer. That persistence in the place of prayer. And so we do see Elisha here as a praying man. But very quickly, we see Elisha as one pointing forward to a greater prophet. If you are anything as a child of God, when you read this portion in your own devotions, you want to get to Christ quickly. Because you, you understand there's something, there's a, there's a prophet anointed of God. There's a, there's a resurrection. And your mind's immediately thinking, how can I get to Christ here? Well, the prophets had a role beyond the individual blessing here. They had a duty and responsibility to reveal God and his ways. Elijah and Elisha are serving at a time when Jehovah as the one true God is being questioned, denied, and attacked. The readers are being forced to acknowledge the existence of Jehovah's power. Whether it's Mount Carmel or the other miracles in Jericho or this one here, there is a repetition of the theme at this point in the book's do you see Jehovah as the one true and living God? And the lesson here is that Jehovah, the one living God, is the Jehovah who overcomes death and gives life. Who is Jehovah? He is the one true living God. What does Jehovah do? Jehovah is the author of life. He is the one who will overcome death. That's what is being revealed here. And of course, the Bible has that theme of death just running through it like a seam. And you begin in the, in the garden. Death comes through sin. Death comes upon all men. Adam and Eve are barred from the tree of life. And then you get to Revelation and the overcomers are told to eat of the tree of life in the new garden of God's. 
And so between the two garden scenes, we observe the wilderness of this world where death dominates as an enemy of man. You've a tree of life in Genesis. You've a tree of life in Revelation. But between, you've just got wilderness scenes. And whether it be the genealogy of Genesis, and he died, and he died, and he died. The death of the patriarchs, the death of David who goes the way of all the earth. You see, you see that death is not man's friend. If you'd ask this woman, she would say that death was not man's friend. Rather, death is our enemy. And so punctuated through the Bible in these wilderness scenes are glimpses of hope and life. And we're learning about God in these portions. And these miracles, they, they point to the hereafter, a, a God who will bring life out of death. See, when Christ comes, he promises to believers eternal, everlasting life. That's the promise. Promised by Jesus who himself proclaimed himself as the life. Jehovah is the one, the one true God who will overcome death and give life. You say, well, if that's so, how come our loved ones aren't all resurrected like this son? How come this son is resurrected and then ultimately would die again? Because the point is, that the final triumph over death awaits the return of Christ. That as you read the scripture, you see, yes, we miss our loved ones. They are taken from us. Why does God not bring back our loved ones from the dead? Well, it's not time yet. He will do, but it's not time yet. And these miracles point to the truth that the dead in Christ shall be made alive. We don't forget the hope of the Christian that involves resurrection. That we should not be ignorant of those who sleep. But we know, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, the dead in Christ shall rise first. And that in 1 Corinthians 15, as Paul describes the return of Christ, he speaks of death as the last enemy defeated. Thanks be to God who giveth us the victory, victory over death. And giving us everlasting life. And so if that theme comes in these verses, then how do these events shed light on that hope? Well, of course, you see in the actions of Elisha, a prophet who identifies with the dead to bring life. We see that. He lies on the boy. Mouth to mouth, eyes to eyes, hands to hands. He's identifying himself with one who is dead. And we think of Hebrews chapter 2. You have the language of Paul in Hebrews chapter 2. We see Jesus made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, that he by the grace of God should taste death for every man. He's made like unto his brethren that he would destroy him, that the part of death that is a devil, and deliver those who through fear of death were all a lifetime subject to bondage. Christ identifies with us in death. It is through death that he destroys him that has the power of death. And we see that here. Elisha identifies with the dead in the dying of this son. But we also see the prophet not only identifies with the dead, but he intercedes for the dead. Now, we've noted the general role that prayer plays in the purposes of God. But if that is so, how much more should we see that the prayers of Christ 
are central to the giving of life to the dead. If Elisha's prayers as a man are effectual here, how much more they point to the effectual prayers of one of whom he describes his own relationship with the Father, I knew that thou hearest me always. The Son having the ear of the Father. Does the Son pray for souls to be saved? Have you ever asked that question? Does the Son of God pray for souls to be saved? I believe he does. Psalm chapter 2, or Psalm 2 prophetically, Ask of me, and I will give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, and the utmost parts of the earth for thy possession. The Father speaks to the Son and says, Ask, you ask, and I will give. You think Christ's own words in John 17, Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also shall believe on me through their word, that they all may be one, as thy Father art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us. That's a prayer for conversion. That's a prayer for those who have not yet believed, but who will believe. It's a prayer that they will be one in the Lord. John Gill the commentator says this, Our Lord knew that there would be a number in all successive generations that would believe on him through the ministry of the word. And for these persons and their conversion and the success of the gospel to the good of their souls, he prays. What's God saying? Commenting in John 17, he's saying that the Son of God prays for souls to be saved. How dare a hyper-Calvinist suggest we should not pray for souls to be saved? We are entering into the prayers of Christ and praying with him for those who have not yet believed. And so as Paul would say, my heart's desire, my prayer for Israel is that they might be saved. The prayers of the great prophet are those prayers the Father answers, sending forth the Spirit of God, whereby dead sinners come to life. What a motivation that is to pray. To pray for loved ones, to pray for neighbours, to pray for our nation. Because we are told to pray, Thy kingdom come. And so may God give us a renewed determination in our souls, believing in the power of prayer and being encouraged that Christ's prayers will be heard and that souls yet to come to him will indeed be saved and will indeed come to know everlasting life. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode of Let the Bible Speak from Malvern Free Presbyterian Church. We extend an invitation to all to join us as we worship the Lord each week you will be made very welcome. The church is situated at 80 Mallon Road, Malvern, Pennsylvania. We meet for worship on the Lord's Day at 11 a.m. and 6 p.m. A Bible study and prayer meeting is also held on Wednesday evenings at 7 p.m. If you'd like more information about the gospel or the church, please call 610-993-3170. That's 610-993-3170 or email malvernfpc at yahoo.com. We preach Christ crucified.